Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo decoded report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestion, endo aligned product matching in your state, suggested dosage guidelines, and optimum methods of administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeka soft gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeka Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. What's up, everyone? Thanks for joining us for a Sunday episode of Cannabis Legalization News. Today, we're joined by Kirsten Velasco and Gina Galt from Illinois Women in Cannabis. Miggy's out sick today, so make sure you comment and wish him well wishes. Uh, how's everybody going? Pretty good. Going? Doing, Lauren? Good, good. Beautiful sunny day. Yes. Yeah. And we have the inside. Illinois Women in Cannabis all joining us. Thank you so much for coming. And what is the Illinois Women in Cannabis? Go ahead, Gina. So Illinois Women in Cannabis is a women's organization. Uh, we mostly operate out of Chicago, but we are throughout the state. Um, we work to help women get jobs in the industry and connect with uh, other women that are interested in cannabis, cannabis education, legalization. Uh, if you're a woman and you like cannabis, we're definitely the organization for you. That's awesome. And then do you have anything coming up that we should know about? And you know, something maybe like this weekend on February 22nd. <laughs> we, we have an awesome conference. It's our inaugural conference to have people be able to come in and take three tracks of, it's two tracks of classes, three different main topics. And we're going to fit it all in between eight in the morning and two o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the most exciting things about this conference is the breakfast and the lunch before and after for networking because we've got some heavy hitters in the industry who are really gonna be phenomenal contacts for making a way in the cannabis industry. That's awesome. So if you're joining us and you wanna get more information on that, give us a thumbs up and subscribe and share this with somebody who needs to go to this Illinois Women's and Cannabis Conference this Saturday at Illinois Chicago Kent Law School. Is that how they pronounce it? Is it Illinois Chicago Kent or is it just Chicago Kent? It's Kent School of Law. Uh, Kent School of Law. Yeah, as you can tell, I am an alum of uh, Marquette University. Did not go to Kent, but I hear it's a great place and it's uh, centrally located downtown. Our founder is a professor, an adjunct professor there to help people with their law classes. So it's obviously a good school. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So, you know, one of the things that I always kind of stress when I'm putting my teams together on their diversity statement, because the uh, I was just going over my applications this weekend. It's uh, I was I was in the middle of Exhibit E, which has to do with packaging and labeling before the show. And I'm like, man, this is something else. But eventually you'll get to the, the divert diversity statement, which is only twenty five hundred words, but it counts for 10 whole percent of your score. One of the things that I like in my diversity statements is uh, an employee mix that reflects the population it serves. And I keep saying this to, to my teams. Remember, guys, because they're usually guys, 50% of the population is female. So how can we get more women in cannabis? There, there's plenty of women who want to participate in this industry. And that's one of the main reasons that Illinois Women in Cannabis exists is because, hey, new industry, no glass ceiling. So let's get connections made. And it's surprising for people to find out. They think, oh, do I have to re-career in order to be in the cannabis industry? No, take the skills that you have, sharpen them to prepare for a new emerging industry that requires adaptability, strategies, you know, be able to wear a lot of hats. So we find that when women find out that they can really just apply their own skills and professional experience, it really does help the industry because look, women make most of the healthcare decisions in the home and cannabis is very closely related to our healthcare options and it's wonderful to have their social perspectives on the industry. Yeah, that is something else, but um, is anybody else getting a little feedback on there? Yeah. Okay. It seems to have gone away. Thank goodness. Uh, but uh, a lot of people uh, that try to get into the industry uh, are kind of have questions. What types of answers would the IWC have for uh, women that are looking to get into cannabis? So it depends on the question that's being asked, but uh, definitely at the conference that we'll be holding this weekend, uh, we'll have people who have found ways to bring their skill set into the cannabis industry. Um, you know, some questions people ask often is how do we get involved? You know, show up to the, not only our events and conferences, but there's such a vast uh, networking group now out trying to get people positions in the cannabis industry. Um, and obviously our focus is women. Um, and during our panels, you'll get to hear from women on the law side and how they're adapting their law knowledge to serve the cannabis industry. You were talking about the packaging. Uh, there, there are so many opportunities to take the things that you're doing now, whether you're in branding, uh, whether you're in sales, and apply that to cannabis because you know all those things are yep. needs in the industry. Yeah, and it's a fascinating and very fertile minefield for these ancillary industries. And so as I'm going over the application, this application integrates with a lot of service providers from lighting to nutrients to uh, who knows what. I mean, like there's security, there's uh, contracting. And your diversity statement also says that you're supposed to have diversity of op and quality of opportunity, which we should really dive into in a bit. Uh, 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 to uh, ensure that, in, and then you're supposed to have methods. And so like a diversity outreach person who, who publishes something every two years when you get your renewals. Uh, what type of ancillary businesses do you see uh, having opportunities for women in the cannabis industry? I'll jump right in here. I think one major one is branding, marketing, digital strategies, uh, uh, social networking. The 
prohibitions on traditional advertising really makes an open door for anybody who can figure out how to do non-traditional marketing and expansion that way. And when it comes to the what we call the ancillary positions, you were just mentioning packaging, package design, all of the strategies that exist with any traditional consumer packaged goods is going to apply to this industry. But it does come with that extra caveat where if you understand government regulations, if you understand grant writing, if you have those types of contacts in the healthcare industry, those are going to directly... chemistry. I didn't mean to... I guess when I talk sometimes there might be a, a... a speaker glitch, but it kind of resolves itself if you just kind of wait. But then there was uh, some, there's some specific carve outs within the testing, for example, for chemistry majors. So like if you're getting a science degree uh, and an advanced one, you might be able to have an opportunity to work either a testing lab or create some type of consulting package where you do their on-site testing to ensure that they have the purity that they need. It's just, uh, you don't have to have the license for the plant you have to have a service or a product that touches it in some way or form. Well, it's and really interesting. Go ahead. It, and not only that, but you know, you're talking about like food science. If you have a culinary background, you can help develop recipes for edibles or, you know, especially as cannabis becomes more um, socially acceptable, you know, finding ways to pair food with cannabis, um, there are, you know, accounting, if you ha- have accounting knowledge, all of these things fold into the cannabis industry as it builds out. Uh, the, the opportunities are really endless. And if you're willing to apply yourself and, you know, put yourself out there, there are, there, like, really, the opportunities are truly endless at the moment. And, and it moves so fast. And so, like, the opportunities right now, these are nascent opportunities that will become more mature over the next 18, 24 months. And mm-hmm. it goes really, really quick. And you don't know what it's going to lead to. But uh, let's talk about the, some of the social equity stuff. What do you think equity of opportunity looks like for you, Kirsten? Equity opportunity in the Illinois space means that women and people of color get to have a stake in the industry. I know that as far as staffing at dispensaries, let's just say, for example, of course, we want to have people there who, like you said, represent the community that 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 dispensary is in. And we want to have people who speak Spanish and Polish and Greek. And that's a definite asset. But when we, we talk about social equity, the actual intention is for those people to actually have a true stake in the industry and the way that that function, you know, for better or worse. And thank God Illinois is doing something about it. We would like to have those people who get their names on an application to actually have a stake in the ownership of that business. And if they don't perform, then obviously their stake is not going to grow. But if they do get that sense of ownership, they can take their expertise for the policy procedures and management and regulation. And then that's going to fuel the value of that particular entity. So it makes sense that if that person is bringing that kind of expertise and management and policy adaptation, the you know overall capital supplier or overall owner can definitely use that as a blueprint on which to expand to other 
dispensaries or other businesses related to cannabis. Yeah, so yeah. that's really our hope. It always reminds me that cannabis, like Wu-Tang is for the children, cannabis is for the community. And so it really creates these new communities that we haven't even started yet in Illinois. And we're going to start seeing it in, uh, I'm sorry, I said March when I meant May, when the dispensary Mm -hmm. winners are announced. And then also in July, when some of the craft growers and uh, the transporters and that and all those uh, other licenses are announced. And then even more in the second wave that comes in 2021. But uh, the opportunity that's out there now for these equity ownership type positions that you're discussing, I think goes beyond the license, which as we all know, the competition is great, 4,000 applications, 75 spots. So there's so much interest, but then where's the opportunity? You see, after the license is handed out, they still need to have that diversity statements that they provided a quality of opportunity for even contracting. So if you're mm-hmm. a vendor, to the industry, and but you have that ownership, which is a much lower bar of ownership because there's no licensing lottery. And that's what happens for the craft growers that was in their QA rules that came out. So uh, it's gonna be ties are gonna be decided by a lottery, which is interesting, you know, at least you tied and then you lost the lottery. Yeah. It, it, uh, we, at the same, I hope that you can second this opinion, Gina, that even when we achieved legalization, I imagined years ago that we'd be like, you know, confetti in the streets and we would, it would be balloons and everybody would be just losing their mind. But we couldn't really entirely celebrate because we knew that it wasn't going to be a perfect program. It wasn't going to be fair. And thank God, at least in the law, it does require that the license owners now do have to engage. And what I've recommended is that they attach themselves to a not-for-profit organization that is already set up, that already knows how to connect with the community, that they can fund and fuel and advertise and promote and support. And that way they don't have to build from scratch and it gives them another connection to other opportunities in the industry to fulfill those social equity requirements. Well, and to your point, Kirsten, like once legalization was achieved, like the work wasn't done. There's still opportunity in, um, you know, the areas that have been impacted by the war on drugs and de-invested communities and making sure that, you know, as individuals are applying for licenses, that they are, you know, taking into account, okay, what does this look like from a social equity standpoint? How can we incorporate you know, making sure that those communities are given back to and are show, you know, that those communities are represented in the dispensaries, in the craft grows, in in the in the industry in general, making sure that those those really important groups of people aren't lost as the industry continues to build itself out. And you know, Tom, to your point, uh, there are opportunities for these, you know communities of color to get in in the ancillary businesses and provide to the dispensaries whether not only to the dispensaries but you know to the to the growing facilities to the manufacturing um there there are a lot of opportunities uh both on the communities to get involved and the people who are holding the licenses to take that up that commitment and that um responsibility seriously. 
I think it is important to note that in these impacted communities, even more than you would expect, it's a not in my backyard type of mentality. I felt like when the medical program rolled out that the, you know, the, our communities of color would be on board and be like, this is finally our chance and we're going to rectify this wrong. And oh, those communities people showed up and said, don't you bring that stuff in here. Yeah. And it yeah. put them behind the eight ball. It put them, you know, at a great disadvantage for time and space and opportunity. And I think now things are coming around, you know, as, as everything has expanded, but it puts a focus, a highlight on the fact that advocacy and outreach and education has got to be done. It, it In order to get those communities to actually benefit from the opportunity, they have to be willing to accept it and bring it into their neighborhood. And I and I actually had to revise some of my materials that I use with my, my checklists for my clients because I'm like, all right, we really need to put this community outreach right in front. No matter what, you're going you're gonna to be somewhere. And where you are, you better start making friends and you better find yeah. out who is in because like one of the problems is because this is still cannabis and the stigma is very real. Even in these disproportionately impacted areas, you still have the NIMBYs, like the not in my backyard. And Gina, you said you were in Grays Lake. Yes. OK, so is that like more affluent than uh, these? OK, so and I, I've noticed like Naperville, they opted out. Uh, so are you seeing a lot of NIMBYs over uh, where you're you're actually a community outreach coordinator, right? I am. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I happen to be lucky that part of the groups that we're currently focusing on is the doctors and making sure that they understand how important this medicine is to some of the people that they're prescribing to and certifying for. Um, you know, I think to kind of rewind a little bit, some of the not in my backyards that are in some of these areas that have been impacted they don't want it necessarily in their backyard because they're not trying to welcome more police into their space. They're, you know, trying to keep trouble out of their neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, they have really been harmed by cannabis in a different way than some of these affluent areas that really are scared because they just don't understand the plant. And, and they don't like of, the smell. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because if they only knew how great it smells, that they I, I understand. I but I can't. But like <laughs> the prejudice runs so deep, so really? deep that it gets to the smell, and like yeah. the odor mitification is the is it, that's what something that you can. And I and maybe I'm being um, uh, unfair and prejudicial when I make this uh, you know uh, determination. But when they start complaining about the smell, that's when I go. This person does not smoke at all. Like that's, that's what I'm like. If you don't even like how it smells, you don't use it. You're probably going to have a misplaced understanding of this plant because Absolutely. you're coming from that prejudice of, ew, it stinks. You know, mm -hmm. like, like if you didn't like the taste of broccoli. But um, uh, so how do you think we can build better communities uh, and have a stronger community behind uh, the plant? Uh, I think there's a few different ways that we can do that. We can lean in on some of the organization, organizations that already exist out there, like Kirsten was saying. Um, the people who are already in our organizations, like Kirsten and myself, continuing to reach out to communities that feel like they're uninterested or just don't understand. The 
education piece is so vital to building these communities because we have to reverse, you know, a hundred years worth of stigma in order to help people really understand the benefits of this plant and connect to one another uh, and help people understand what kind of harm was really done in these de-invested communities because some people just also don't understand what it means to um, uh, ha live in an area that has been affected by uh, the war on drugs. Yeah. Or, or just Illinois' crappy economy in general. I mean, we've just been stagnant. And so that they've, because if you look at the DC, and I, I always get this confused, or at least it jumbles up in my head, the DCEO, or it's the DECO, whatever their map is for uh, social equity. And, and if you look at it, it, it's white, big, vast spaces of white, and then these little dots of blue. And those little dots of blue really correlate to the inner cities. And so um, they've been not just ravaged, but it's been doubly ravaged because all of the white flight or, you know, um, the migration to the suburbs. I, I don't get it. I, I kind of enjoy the city, but then I, I, I like getting away from it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm always interested in like figuring out more of how we can destigmatize the plant. But uh, at the same time, I'm also you know, maybe too uh, glib when confronting people that disagree with me. How do you make inroads with those people? I like them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like them because it shows me where people's sticking points or their pain points are. I would like them to challenge and expose their misconceptions, because it's amazing when I do programs and do education, they'll say like, how do you have, where's the education? Where's the proof? Where's the uh, scientific research that backs up what you're saying? And the only way someone could say that to me is if they haven't even looked for it. So it's a great mm -hmm. opportunity for, for me to say, oh my gosh, just look at this website, look at that website. You're gonna find an abundance of science. Nevertheless, we wouldn't have gotten this far unless cannabis exceeds everyone's expectations. Yeah. And I had such a wonderful conversation at one of my programs where a gentleman who's a retired police officer was hired for extra security duty during the first days of the recreational sales. And he came up to me and he said, you wouldn't believe the people who I saw online. It was nothing like I expected. These people came in on walkers. They came in from everywhere and it had such an impact for him to see the people who were interested in purchasing cannabis legally that it made him come and show up at my program. And I feel like the people who have the deepest stigma have the potential to become the strongest and most outspoken advocate because, you know, some of the people who are, are our most outspoken advocates admit that the motivation is that they thought, oh, this is for yeah. stupid young people fooling around, you know, taking uh, stupid risks with their brain. And then they come to find out this saved me from the deepest, darkest depression and illness I've ever had. So right. uh, it's, it's uh, one person at a time. It's one conversation at a time. And when we get into big groups and we start talking about, oh, you know, how do we get rid of the stigma? It inevitably leads to a discussion about, oh, we need to change the laws. Mm -hmm. Well, 
that is one portion of it because even when the law changes, you're still gonna have people who assume the worst about people who consume. There, you're gonna have the resistance in the community for expansion. And my bottom line, and the thing that tugs at my heart is that people suffer because they are embarrassed by cannabis use, whether it's Mm -hmm. theirs or somebody that they know. So only upon the repeated exposure do we desensitize people and they realize later on, they're like, oh, well, I kind of need to keep quiet about my yeah, resistance yeah. to cannabis. I think you made a really, really interesting point on one of the ways, one of the uh, tactics that you can use to engage people that might be anti-cannabis to use that. It's kind of like waking up from the matrix because you're talking and you said that they had the ability to become very powerful advocates because they're living the lie. That is the cannabis. And then suddenly they're like, and then it helped because like it's that story that everybody it's that I usually ask, like, why did you get into this? And it's usually a very passionate story about how Mm -hmm. their lives was changed for the better. And so it's like, hey, you can use that as uh, playing devil's advocate and tempt them because wouldn't who wouldn't want to say my life is so much better because of that. And so it's a plant that literally has the ability to do that to your life. Mm-hmm. And as you meet these people that were so anti and then they become very pro and they're actually great advocates, they usually have a story like that. So maybe that's something that we need to uh, make a hashtag for and uh, get trending. I don't know. <laughs> Put that to marketing. What do you, Gina, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think like one of the ways uh, to just build on what you both said is anybody who was anti-cannabis and then had a family member that was helped from cannabis I mean, their eyes are just blown wide open to seeing what a gift it is to be able to consume cannabis and how it changes your life, whether you're struggling with, you know, anorexia, you've got cancer, you're suffering from pain. Anybody, especially I feel like people who have cannabis or pardon me, cancer or someone that they know and they use cannabis to help them have an appetite again, feel less pain, change their outlook on life. Those are really powerful experiences to witness. And, and that's part of how we continue to grow, uh, you know, cannabis fans. I think you're right. I think that's one of the reasons why the, as, because if you look at the history of this movement, it's all been predicated on lies. And then it was illegal. The, the old line of, we need more research. It's like, okay, can we get any research how yeah. about some research because yeah right now the when they use that research line it pisses me off so much because the only research you can do is research that proves it's harmful mm-hmm. and after five decades of only being able to research that proves that it's harmful the only thing that's really happened is hundreds of thousands of people have died from opioid abuse what right. the heck you know <clears throat> it's almost like the statistics get so big that they start to lose meaning But what Gina was saying about people telling their story, there's nothing more powerful than telling a story. You can come up with all the statistics and somebody then says, well, let me go to my source and I'll get all the statistics to refute that, you know? (laughs) And so it's only upon the stories. And I have only just after 160 educational programs have gotten really honest about why I'm connected to cannabis. And honestly, 
the original reason why I'm connected to cannabis is that I have a brother who got prosecuted for growing cannabis. And I have been a lifelong consumer and enjoyer, and it came with shame and stigma. So between that feeling of knowing that there's no scientific basis for legitimizing cannabis being illegal, period, and knowing that my brother's life was impacted permanently by those experiences, and it was really only after my niece Uh, notified me that they were really close to creating a medical program that, you know, all of that history and all of those years of, of that type of suffering made me compelled to do it. And not everybody gets the bug like we do, where we feel like we have to shout it from the rooftops. A lot of patients who get benefit, like you said, specifically from cancer, that experience of being diagnosed with cancer is so life altering Mm -hmm. that if someone gets a benefit from it, they want to go back to their previous life. They never want to say a word about cancer. They don't want to say a word about cannabis. So I also feel like it puts the burden on people who have the means and the experience and the stories and feel well enough to shout it from the rooftop. So I do feel like if everybody who know someone who consumes cannabis or who's benefited from cannabis were to say it openly, the stigma would already be gone. So it really is about bringing people to Illinois Women in Cannabis because when you go to an event, you're with all these people who are completely confident and completely open about their love and passionate of cannabis. And you need to marinate in that good and long time before you have the confidence to go out and participate, take it to your community, talk to people openly about it. And most of the time, when someone does have that courage to say cannabis out loud for the first time, someone will raise their hand and go up to them and say, oh my gosh, thank you for breaking the ice because I've had that same experience. So having that grassroots level experience is for me, ultra essential. Oh, yeah. Have you guys seen that uh, HB 4047 that is now going on in the House in Illinois regarding the uh, social consumption lounges? Yeah. So they're, they're trying to, you know, push those forward and figure out a way to make them and try and figure out a way. Like there is a way, right? There is. It's called the liquor license. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, why shouldn't we? This this is one thing that really just drives I'm me. I'm so insane. glad that they at least are being expressed with it now. That yeah, is that they basically have crafted like, you know, here's your liquor license ordinance, but for cannabis coming mm-hmm. from us on high at the state level, because the municipality is like, no, no, yeah, and I got it. Yeah, they they really do. You know, I think once the state takes it seriously and and opens up the door, the municipalities are more inclined to be like, okay, there's some. Le- legitimacy to this let's let's maybe consider it now mm-hmm. because a little bit back to that like not in my backyard because you still have to get the the cities and the towns to agree to have these kind of lounges in their spaces which is so crazy because if you've ever been uh fortunate enough to smoke in a or consume in a public setting you will never find a more low-key group of people yeah. than a bunch of people smoking weed together like no one's fighting. Nope. No one's arguing. Everyone's hanging out, having a chill time. Uh, we, we definitely need a few more consumption lounges everywhere. Yeah. But yeah. Like, I can attest to that because most people, though, you have to understand, most people haven't just seen a blatant 
smoking uh, mm-hmm. of cannabis. And then yeah. people are just fine. Most people have seen blatant drinking. They go to a football game, right? They've seen mm-hmm. that. So they understand it in their brains. Totally. And so same with me, even like, you know, corn fed boy from Illinois. Uh, and so uh, I go to hemp fest last year and then there's no alcohol allowed, which I'm assuming is going to be the same thing. Uh, or there might be some type of limitations or overregulations. We'll see. But the the consumption lounge bill that's going through or amendment to the CRTA, uh, I don't think provides for alcohol. So you just see all these people where no alcohol served flagrantly and openly smoking weed and like dabs, just mm-hmm. uh, doing all sorts of public consumption. And then at 420, it's like a small haze just kind of drifts <laughs> off into the Puget Sound. And uh, at the end, at like, you know, nine o'clock, they just pack up and go home. Yeah. Ready for bed. Yep. Yeah, that, that's the if you get a candid conversation going with a police officer, that's what they'll tell you. They'll say, I have never had any problem with someone smoking cannabis. It's only alcohol that those people will give me any kind of back talk or trouble. Somebody who consumes cannabis is very pleasant and uh, very compliant to anything a police officer would ask of them. Hmm. We've, we've got to have those consuming lounges so that, po- that the local police can see that for themselves. Well, and, you know, you talk about compliance. Of course, we're all compliant. We don't want to get kicked out of anything. We're just trying to enjoy a smoke around some friends or, you know, uh, I think that cannabis consumers are are quite law abiding because they don't want to have their, you know, ability to smoke and consume taken away very. And we're all so chill. How can you be hyped up, you know? I, I think anybody who's open about their cannabis consumption does feel a natural commitment to projecting the best image completely. I mean, my mm-hmm. gosh, there's just too much at stake. We don't yeah. want to give the prohibitionist any fodder whatsoever uh, to hold against us and, and limit. It's it's funny to have all these regulations against our activities before anything documented bad has even happened. Mm-hmm. And, then you create, and it's like they're moving in gold or something like of, of obscene value with the amount yeah. of overregulation. Cause these applications for like the growers and then the dispensaries, they're hundreds of pages long, hundreds. And then it's somebody crazy. has to read all that stuff and then the regulations. And so I'm seeing it now as I'm, cause we just talked about an amendment which would be like the third to this law, which isn't even a year old because they had it open. And then they did that trailer bill where they made it really restrictive about social use. And now they have this new bill. And so you can see that it's going to be, wow, whomever is the compliance officer is going to be sitting there just going, oh, here's the new updates for today. You know, it's it's going to be a nonstop evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. Hopefully some of those adaptations won't have to be fully legislated where it's a proposed rules or some type of rule implementation instead of going through, excuse me, the whole legislative process, both houses and a governor's signature. And luckily, because we have a group of wonderful legislative advocates in the Springfield for us, Mm -hmm. when we come across these little glitches in implementing the law, it's like, oh, you know what? We didn't think of that. Let's contact Bob Morgan. Let's contact yep. Heather Staines and Toy Hutchinson and say, mm-hmm. hey, we ran into this. Let's talk about it. And they're like, okay, we're we're sweeping together a whole bunch of these little 
uh, specific fi fixes that we can just go ahead and implement an issue, like you said, to compliance officers. Let's, let's just talk about a few of those right now. For example, uh, up to four craft growers should be able to share the same real estate so that we can get some economies on scale on acreage and, and uh uh, flowering space and just other larger Morton buildings, I think would be good for the genetics uh, portion, or portion of Illinois. And then also the extraction, they'd be able to pool the resources so that they wouldn't have to all have to buy their own extraction equipment. And then yeah. also, I, I'm going to wait until after the second wave, but then I think we need a methodology where we can actually have a, a policy for how we will issue new licenses. And so after these 150, because there's a statutory cap, that they can't go over. So that's going to take a legislative change. And so if you're going to make a legislative change, you might as well make some type of algorithm that says, if this happens, then X amount of new licenses shall be made, made available. That's a start. I just read an article this morning that Missouri has 200 dispensary licenses right out of the gate. Yep. And I... So let's say we're at 55 recreational licenses and then we add 55 more because they're allowed to expand out of their medical license into rec, then we're going to add 75 and we're still only at 185 licenses. Yep. And Missouri has 6.1 million people. Illinois has 12.8. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've got some challenges ahead. I felt like right from the beginning that the legislation built in the cause of its demise where it's, yeah, okay, so thank you for chiming in there and agreeing with that. Oh my gosh, so, uh, and that's just been, it's the heart and passion of cannabis activists to be like, yeah, no problem, we'll do it, we'll still succeed regardless of the, the ridiculous regulations that have been implemented. So what do you think's often overlooked when we're talking about social equity in the cannabis industry, uh, Gina? What do I think is overlooked? Um, you know, I think that I, and I'm, so one of the things that's overlooked is the amount of capital that you need to even get started in the cannabis industry. So they're talking about, you know, social equity and making it more accessible. And these are the, the goals that you need to meet. Uh, but they, but where is that funding supposed to come from for these people that, you know, maybe don't have the means to create a craft grow from the ground up and they don't have $10,000 to maybe make it into what they're hoping for. Um, like you were saying with the being able to pull resources, if, if they, if we want to get anywhere from a social equity standpoint, being able to work together and collaborate in order to move forward is going to be essential. Where do they, the people who are the proverbial they, the people writing the laws, think that these communities that have been deinvested in are going to get the funds to, you know, compete with some of these bigger players in the industry. Um, you know, it it's kind of like, it's very much a catch-22. They want there to be the social equity portion, but where are the funds supposed to come from? You know, the real estate portion of things, oh, how are they going to get a dispensary? There, there are so many pieces that are under thought about, um, you know, I could what, what do you, do we know of any other States that are doing a better job than Illinois that are out there? Yeah. You know, I, why compare ourselves to other States? Like no one's doing it right. No one's doing it as best as they can. Why, 
why look to other people that aren't doing it as well as we are or what have you? Like, we know what good looks like. Why don't we just drive towards good and not stop until we get there? You know, San Francisco is retroactively doing their part to kind of come back from this. But but even still, you look in the news and funds are being used for other ventures rather than pouring them into these communities, uh, you know. Like football police, stadiums. Yeah, and police academies, you know, great. They're going to go arrest more of them. Yes, like, no, th those funds actually need to genuinely go back into these communities and give these social equity applicants the ability to succeed and not just, you know, because if they're, if they're yeah, if they're already bootstrapping it because they're social equity applicants and they manage to get through a few of the hurdles and then they're awarded a license and they've already been bootstrapping it to that point. And then they have to get funding from who knows what and what their terms are going to be. Are they just going to all of a sudden be on the hook and squeezed out because they couldn't make a debt payment? Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. sell their dispensary or their license to someone who does have the funds to operate it. Uh, you know, funding is a huge portion of how these businesses will succeed. And, you know, where is that funding going to come from? Mm -hmm. And mentorship. It's, mm -hmm. We're reinventing the wheel from scratch every time somebody tries to open up a business in the industry. And I think the number was 21 million set aside for yes. low interest loans for social equity applicants. And at the same time, I'm cheering. Oh, yay, that's wonderful. It's still just a loan. Yeah, that's Once right. That. So like you still have to win the license and then you have to apply for the loan. And so like it, it doesn't come integrated like that. How, and that's that's also going to trip up anybody who's trying to get a craft grow license. And one of their exhibits has to disclose like literally all the contracts for the for the contractors that have come in and provide the sophisticated services to the people that are going to be loaning money, all that stuff so that they can see how you're going to cash flow that. And I just most social equity applicants, most Illinois people, most people in general on the earth just don't have three to six million dollars. They no. don't. Yeah. No. A lot of people are going to be able to get a wonderful business up and running, but ha to have the funding to sustain it and grow it, it really does put them in a position to sell out. Mm -hmm. Especially if they're getting, I mean, because if capital is harder to come by and they're bleeding, yeah. And so, and then of course with the, the, you know, all the social equity pieces, even in the craft grow, you have to operate that thing because you're not allowed to sell it until December 31st of 2021. So you're on the hook for a couple of years and mm -hmm. you have to go get it. I mean, you're not allowed to transfer that stuff. So they gave you that because they thought you'd be able to open in six months. And how many, I mean, 40 licenses are available, but how many teams are going to be so well capitalized and well organized and to be able to be open in six months, it's going to be just a handful and they're going to be rich. Yeah. I mean, some, some of the organizational pieces, right? So there are opportunities for equity or, you know, people, minorities to be involved if you're if you're running a business at the moment and it's not cannabis related but you have the ability to take those business building uh skills and apply them to the cannabis industry you know that could really benefit a group that maybe has the funds and is right. looking for that extra piece to help them succeed or 
you know, qualify for some of the social equity pieces. Um, there, there are a few different ways that you can get involved as a person of color looking to help grow the industry, but there has to be, you know, profit share involved in that. You know, I'm bringing my skills to the table. So that looks like this amount with your funding that looks like this amount. Right. And that's something that's very interesting when it gets into the nuances of how to create these corporate entities that we make and, and what people do actually bring to the table and how they actually share those profits. And that's that's a real interesting thing that Illinois did legislatively. And I everybody I've seen in the other states they didn't do anything integrating it into the law, into the application in a way that wasn't just obviously racist like they did in Ohio. Um, you know, Ohio was a funny one. I mean, it just said disproportionate or no disadvantaged races. And then it listed everybody besides white people. And I'm like, wow, they are just trying to get that. And it got disqualified, you know, because, yeah. duh. Uh, but Illinois was very careful with how they created these disproportionately impacted communities. And then they've created a, a method to provide money to them in theory, or at least to generate this uh, money that's going to go to specific um, institutions in the government. I mean, that tax dollar gets carved up. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see what gets done. Like, because Illinois was really broken, like really broken. Mm -hmm. I remember like Bruce Rauner, Illinois. Oh, that sucked. <laughs> it, that did suck. yeah. it did suck. It was horrible. God, I mean everybody was just leaving. Yeah. Yeah, financially for the state, I think it was horrible. I mean, depending on your perspective. And then he was also horrible to the medical program. I waited two and a half months. What's that? Two and a half months. Yeah, me as well. Yep. Was it like 2017, somewhere in there? Yeah. yeah. And yep. it just took forever. There was yep. like the, it's, I love how easy it is now to help patients get their card. It is literally several hours and you're ready to go. Whereas, some of us, we needed to be fingerprinted and background checked and, you know. I want reciprocity. Yeah. That would be nice. But then again, you know, uh, maybe I think the state's like, nah, you don't get reciprocity. Pay the taxes. You're an adult. Mm. Right. It, it's. Yeah. It, I think that that was one way that the legislature coaxed it through to get signed and get enough majority on board was, Look at the revenue. We need this revenue. We need to save revenue on enforcement, the judicial system. And really, it's not going to change the financial state of Illinois. I've, I unfortunately have looked at it and it's like, yeah. OK, yeah. Uh, maximum in the next two or three years is going to be three hundred seventy five million in revenue. And I think that our budget is in like 25 billion in debt every year. Yeah. Something crazy. Like the, the, the budget's 50 billion. Start. And we're, I know it. I'd say that. Yeah. I try I to mean, stay positive. Every, every that, counts. Like the, uh, yeah, those are probably only taking into consideration this, the revenues that are specifically linked and tied to the cannabis program in and of itself. They aren't looking at all the other sales tax revenues that are going to go to the local communities and all the other income tax revenues that are going to go because of all the employees. Uh, I mean, one of those larger aspects of it might it, it, it could write it. Uh, but then again, uh, that that takes under the assumption that Illinois starts making other laws that make a lot of sense financially like they did with cannabis. And maybe they will. I don't know. Yeah, I got super excited about hemp licenses yeah. being issued this uh, one year ago, January. And that business has had a lot of fits and starts because 
people got on board. They were excited. They dedicated the acreage to it. And then there was no processing facilities. And this happened in many, many states. I still feel like the hemp and cannabis is a one-two punch for the state of Illinois. And our position in the country itself, I, it's shaped like a sphere. It's, Illinois is shaped like an arrowhead. I consider it to be that tip of the sphere that spills over and helps all the other states take advantage of it. But this is our chance to take advantage of it and get that economic opportunity. I don't know. The problem that I have with hemp is that the CBD price got halved in the past year. And then next year is really the last year that you can plant the CBD seeds because the USDA regs go into effect for the 2021 crop year. And that's like all CBG seeds. So it's going to be bananas out there. And you're right that there is no processing. But um, then you have the continued prejudice on the hill because they could have interpreted the USDA could have interpreted 0.3 percent delta nine levels. However, they wanted they were in charge with with that task to say what it meant. And they could have said what has currently been going on. No, Delta Delta nine, not total. And so that can mm-hmm. be like miscarried to a certain extent because I can get I can go down to my dispensary here. And I, I know that GTI has some products that I could probably find. It's very high quality flower product that has been perfectly taken care of and manicured. So much of its THCA content never denatures into Delta 9. So you might be able to find uh, adult use cannabis or medical cannabis that is technically, like if you would have had grown it pursuant to a, um, a hemp license and you were under that line, that was technically in Illinois industrial hemp. So, mm-hmm. but still, the other way they could have done it was just like, you know, point. 3% Delta 9, and then c- confirmed by this gas chromatography that shows the spike of CBD being substantially higher than the spike of THC. Yeah. I think the money-making aspect is like, oh, wow, CBD, it's so popular. We can create our own brand and CBG. It's also non-psychoactive. Can I just plant the seed literally to grow hemp for fiber? You know what I'm saying? It, it, we can We can actually make hemp be an agricultural textile That's the problem. Like the state of Illinois needs to have like a grant or something with its agricultural colleges because you do not. It's the processing facilities that they're currently growing it for is for CBD hemp. The CBD hemp is not what you would grow for like blue jeans or plastic or building materials or oil or, or anything like that. So it's a catch 22 because unless and this stuff doesn't concern the USDA regulations because you wouldn't be growing it for its CBD characteristics or you're growing it for its other industrial applications. But then you have nowhere to sell it to. So, like, that's why it's prohibitive. And unless somebody's going to come in and spend nine hundred million dollars or over one hundred million dollars on infrastructure. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And that's how it actually did happen with the hemp for victory where it had been made illegal. And then when we needed the textiles for the second world war, I believe it was, they required farmers to grow it. And I think it's Polo, Illinois that has this historical connection to hemp growing because that's where the test facility for processing all that hemp. So, Hey, you know what, if we have a war, we have all the investment we need to grow and get textiles. It's almost we're like we're under the war. It's called a drug Stop. war. It's a terrible <laughs> war. Uh, no. Why don't we just why don't we just invest in Bernie? Bernie, like Bernie, come on, give him right. money. Give us, uh, a, give us a trillion dollars for making all this hemp infrastructure. 
Yeah. 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 It, it was going to inevitably land into the election. Mm-hmm. Buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> well, I didn't like, I mean, like everybody's saying, and again, a lot of our viewers, on average, people are about 50-50 Demo- or liberal or conservative and independent. Yeah. And some people just, they they really go far to one side or another, but they're in the absolute minority. Uh, and so uh, I, I think a lot of people are just trying to be like, all right, I don't really care anymore. You know, people can complain about them. At least we can complain about them. Uh, my economy's fine. So like, unless the economy just takes a crap, I think it's going to be four more years of the same. And then in Trump's budget, he just tries to refund the war on medical marijuana. Yeah. And you're like, okay, crap. You're saying yeah. this guy supports it and he'll sign it. But then at the same time, his administration's like, nah. Really, I, I think that you've just cracked open the door on why people take a back seat and try not to get engaged because they don't see their government services working. Right. Now, look, somebody comes and picks up the garbage. When I turn on the faucet, water comes out. Those are some wonderful essentials that people take for granted. But what we want to see is the legislative process. Those people elected to represent us really putting the rubber to the road and getting things done. Now, until I started studying cannabis, I really was in that basket of, oh, no, yeah, nothing's getting done. Everybody's in it for the money. It's all a scam. You know, it's, you know, all everybody's in for themselves. But having Illinois actually accomplish these type of legislative milestones has built up my confidence. I've met people who are legislators who they're in it for the right reasons. They are out there every day providing those services and connecting with the people and listening to what they want. So uh, for better or worse, I hope springs eternal. Good. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the event that Illinois Women in Cannabis has this weekend at Kent Law School in Chicago. Uh, you said there was going to be panels. Go over some of the panels that uh, and who are the kind of who's going to be some of the speakers. So we'll have a few different panels. We'll have a Cannabis 101, which Kirsten will be participating in. Uh, one of our other board members, uh, Kaylee Hugekirk. Hugekirk. Who Kirk will be participating in. Uh, we have a social equity piece that John Day Scott and Akili Parnell will be participating in. Uh, we have cannabis jobs, both plant touching and ancillary. So Jolene Rivera from Kitchen Toke, Manny Mendoza from Herbal Notes, um, Athena Alexander from Grassroots will be speaking. Um, and then we have some legal panels. Uh, Dina Rollman, one of our board members, will be moderating. We'll have some members of Denton's law firm uh, participating, some members from Lock and Lord. Uh, you know, we, we'll have we'll have really great panels. I'm really looking forward to all the conversations that we're going to be having. Um, tickets are $60 to $100. Uh, if you qualify for our um, social equity piece, you can write your case to communications at IllinoisWomenInCannabis.org to be granted a discounted ticket price because uh, we do want to help make it accessible to people that really want and need this knowledge and maybe don't have the ability to make that $60 commitment. Um, but yeah, we're looking to forward to a really great uh, conference. 
That's great. All right, let's show them where they can find it. It's at an Eventbrite. We're going to put a link to this in the description section of this video. So check it out and you can get your tickets there. And then uh, you can find Illinois Women in Cannabis at IllinoisWomenInCannabis.org, women, women, right? That's right. Awesome. You can also find them on LinkedIn. So follow and them. Facebook there. and Instagram and Twitter and all those things. All the socials. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, y'all's events are so dope. I went two years ago and it was just so incredible. Are you going? Here. Are you going this Saturday? I'm not sure. We're still thinking about it. I want to go. All right, you should go. We should, we'll sponsor the ticket. Oh, thank there you. you. Oh, you yay. <laughs> Thanks hey, again, thank, guys. Make sure. Thank, thank you so much for your support. It means the world to, uh, to us to have your connections and thank your support. You. Yep. I hope it's a great event. I might see you, but I'm really... Uh, I'm really committed to getting these applications done, so and um, so I'm going to get back to work on that. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. We'll see you on Wednesday. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.